My, uh, my wife and I, Zoe, both um, watched a film recently together. I know for many it's a greatly loved film. It's a, a, a cult film, basically, that sort of took off that people weren't expecting to be so popular. It's a film called Lost in Translation. Some of you may have seen it. There are a few nods. Um, it's got Bill Murray in it, a very young Scarlett Johansson. And for many, I say, it's a firm favourite. We, we didn't like it very much at all. Um, I think it was meant to be a comedy. If you've not seen it, you might be surprised at... Or if you have seen it, sorry, you might be surprised at the fact it was meant to be a comedy because it just wasn't very funny. At the heart of this film, you had two people who were um, isolated. They were brought together, this surprising friendship between these two very different people. Um, essentially because they didn't understand what everyone else was saying. They were both based in the Japan. They were both isolated. Uh, an inability to, to sort of communicate with other people. And so they find friendship. It's, it's very popular. But we thought it was rubbish. It's a film about culture shock. It's a film about isolation. It's a film about not being able to communicate. Not being able to talk to people. We are social beings as humans, and language communication is, is vital. It's crucial. It's one of the reasons at Magdalen Road we like to, or we, we're seeking to put on iConnect groups, opportunity to engage with and meet with international students to help them, and as they come to a country and aren't necessarily able to, to communicate with people around them, they can feel very lost and isolated, all at sea. It's a very lonely experience to not be able to talk to people, to understand people. So let me ask you, what would you do if you were the Apostle Peter as he speaks this sermon? Remember the story from last week in Acts. The disciples were, as Jesus had told them to, they they were waiting in Jerusalem, they were waiting for the gift that God had promised to them, this Holy Spirit who would come and empower them, enable them to fulfill the task that he's called them to. And the Holy Spirit comes, and everyone speaks God's word, miraculously, speaking of his miraculous deeds, we said last week. Language of of redemption, language from the Old Testament of God rescuing his people from Egypt. Speaking of the rescue in Jesus. The world understands it, but some of them are just baffled. So what would you do at this point if you were Peter, as you sought to explain what was going on? People scratching their heads. How come we can understand these folk speaking our language about the miraculous deeds of God? What does Peter do? He explains it to them in their language. He says, you should have expected this. This was what was going to happen. This was not a surprise. And he does it by opening up two prophecies for them. Verse 17 through to 21 is from Joel. And what the prophet Joel shows us is that everything is new. Everything is new, says Peter. And then we'll look a little bit later as well as you turn over the page. And he opens up some of the Psalms. And he says, or David says, the king is here. So Joel, everything is new. David, the king is here. 
Why is everything new? Well, have a look at it with me. Verse 17. In the last days, God says. So the first thing that we see is this is a new era. Verse 17. The last days have begun. It's as if the calendar has has flicked ahead and it's a new epoch. Something new has happened. In the last days, God says... I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Do you remember the situation? We are at Pentecost as we read this. The dispersed people of God, the dispersed Jews, have gathered together in Jerusalem for an Old Testament festival, a time when they remember the Lord giving his law at Sinai. The Mosaic law, a time when they remember the first fruits of the harvest. Fascinating parallels. We've got the old covenant being paralleled with the new. We've got the first fruits of the harvest and then a new harvest of people. And so he opens up Joel and he speaks their language. Texts that they would know like the backs of their hands. Texts that they had grown up with. God's people gathered together and he speaks from Joel. And with this Holy Spirit being poured out, it's a new beginning. Nothing will ever be the same again. That doesn't mean the Holy Spirit has just been invented. If you read your Old Testaments, I'm sure you will know that God's Holy Spirit has been there from the very beginning. In fact, the first chapter of Genesis, again and again and again. But rather than him being uh, for certain people, for certain times, for a certain equipping, this is universal. This is different. All kinds of people will receive his Holy Spirit. It's striking, isn't it? One of the promises in the Bible that we're waiting for. One of the promises that comes again and again and again. One of the drumbeats as you go through the Old Testament is God saying, I will be with my people. I will live with you. I will be your God. And here we have him coming to live with his people, in his people. This is... Emmanuel, God with us forever. This is a new era. The last days have started as his spirit is poured out. And with that new era comes a new understanding. So if you were to flip back to Joel, which you're welcome to do, or you can have a look at it later. Um, Joel chapter 2, do you see verse 28 to 32, the little footnote there at the bottom of the sea? This prophecy comes from just before verse 28, in what is commonly called verse 27. He says this, he says, Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. So God is talking about wanting to be among his people again. And here he is, which is amazing in itself. Do you remember... The story of the Old Testament, so how far back do we go? We, God's people walk out on him and say they want to do things their way. They don't want God to be their God anymore, and so he judges them, and they're excluded from his presence. But there's a promise of something more, a promise of one who will come and bless the nations, Abraham. I will give you a place. I will make you into a people and you will bless the world. And things look like they're going quite well because numbers are getting bigger. He's making them into a people, but then they find themselves in the wrong place. In Egypt, they are slaves. 
And God rescues them from Egypt through Moses. He leads them into the promised land through Joshua. And then we get these kings and we get Solomon and the kingdom divides Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Solomon's sin, Solomon's rebellion means that the people of God are split. The place of God is split in two. And this guy, Joel, this prophet, is speaking to the south. And he says, you'll be restored. You will be restored. The world will know that the Lord is God, that there is no other. And it goes further than that because he says, when God comes to live in you, your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. Even on servants, both men and women. It's, it's an interesting language because he's talking of a new understanding when everybody will know God. Everybody. God will reveal himself to all his people. They will all have a new understanding of him. They will be restored to the lands. And they will know their God. So the difference... We'll see this more in a bit. This understanding is not just for a select few. It's not just for super Christians. Super believers. No, no, his Holy Spirit is going to come and help them to know him. Whoever they may be. And because we know him. We have a new understanding of God. Then we will have new jobs. He reveals himself to all people. And so the job description of his people changes. And we have a job now. Verse 17, verse 18, of prophesying. What does that mean? What does it mean that all God's people will prophesy? Well, you can come and grab me afterwards. I think prophecy in the Bible is a broad concept. Um, the, the, the working sort of description that I normally use is spirit-inspired wisdom for the building up of the church. That's a fairly broad understanding of what prophecy is. I take it here, it's a little bit narrower than that, it's knowing the will of God and declaring it to others. So later in Acts, we will get some more extraordinary prophets. We'll get people who will come and sort of predict stuff. They are set aside prophet big P. Yet here it seems all God's people Our prophets, little p, they would know the will of God and they declare it to others. So verse 17, your sons and daughters will prophesy. Verse 18, men and women, God will pour out his spirit on them and they will prophesy. Such that, verse 21, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So what is prophecy in Acts in this thing? I think essentially it is proclaiming the gospel. We prophesy as we declare God's will to others. As we call on them to call on the name of the Lord and be saved. And you see that happening as Acts unfolds. You see all kinds of people from different backgrounds, different situations, different um, ethnicities, different whatever it might be, hearing this news about Jesus and trusting him. And taking that news on to others. And others prophesy and others prophesy as they declare what God is doing. So what is prophecy here? It is the gospel going out. It is the word of God spreading. 
And that is a job for everybody. Who's the prophet? Who's the um, promise for? Well, there are new recipients. And we've slightly already seen this, but I just want to bring it out a bit more. It's striking that the Spirit comes not just for particular people. So as you read the Old Testament, you will see prophets and priests and kings and judges and leaders and people with a remarkable gifting who have God's Holy Spirit. That's what happens under the Old Covenant. And now it's different. It's men and women and old and young and normal people. People who have had a rubbish week. People who hardly read their Bibles. People who feel they've let God down this week. People who are frustrated with sin. It is sons and daughters, old men, young men, servants, all kinds of people. People like you, people like me. We have his spirit living in us. It's interesting, there's almost a hint as well in verse 17 that it's not just for Israel. Remember, this is the people of God gathered for Pentecost in Jerusalem. This Old Testament um, festival that they are celebrating together. But look, verse 17, I will pour out my spirit on all people. All people will receive his spirit. Coming back at the start of Acts in verse 8, you get the... The heads up as to where it's all going. The structure of the book. Acts 1 verse 8. It's going to be Jerusalem. And then Judea and Samaria. And then the ends of the earth. And who will God pour his spirit out on? On all people. And you see it happening as the the book unfolds. You see the gospel progressing. You see it bearing fruit. You see Jesus continuing his work through spirit-empowered individuals. You see prophets taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. So maybe there's a hint there in verse 17 that his spirit is not just for an ethnic people, but for all people. We are the ends of the earth. We have been given his spirit. And then there's a new future from Joel as well. So the pouring out of his spirit marks the start of a new era. The last days have begun. While so we see the end of the story as well. He looks ahead into the future and tells you how it's going to finish. The era begins with his Holy Spirit being poured out. The era ends in verse 19 and 20 or 19 to 21. That's slightly weird language. Let me read it to you again. He says, I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood after the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. So the great and glorious day of the Lord is another day when God will come and visit his people. It's still to come, I take it. It's still a little way off. It's written in metaphor, it's kind of apocalyptic language, it's Slightly bizarre, this idea of blood and moons and great and glorious stuff and darkness and all this kind of thing. He's writing in a particular way that they would understand that marked the end. But it's interesting though, when you read of the day of the Lord language in the Bible, I could be wrong, but I think without exception, there are almost always, anyway, twin ideas that come. That is, of judgment and grace. Of wrath 
and mercy. When the day of the Lord comes, you see both. And I take it there have been little shadow days of the Lord that have happened in the past that point ahead to the big one. When God comes to visit, he comes to judge and to show grace. The big one that's to come will be tiny compared to what's already happened. And so what do we do as prophets? Well, we know the end is coming. We know one day Jesus will come back. We know there will be a great and glorious day of the Lord. And so what do we do? Verse 21, we urge people to call on the name of the Lord and be saved. He will come, but there will be grace. So Peter speaks their language and he says, you should know John. Joel told you what was going to happen. He said things were going to be new. He, he said that when his God's spirit comes and is poured out on people, then that will begin the last days. A new era, a new understanding. We have new jobs with new recipients and a new future to come. And then he goes to King David. And I think he's wanting to explain why everything is new. The importance of Jesus with this new era. And he says, the king is here. I'm going to read verse 22 again through to the end of the passage. Just to try and get it into our heads. He says this, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him onto the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, you will not let let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will find me with joy in your presence. But fellow Israelites, I can confidently tell you that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah. That he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life. And we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. And has poured out what you now see and hear. Did you see what Peter does? He says, look at what David wrote in Psalm 16. Look at what he is saying about himself. And you will see that it does not match up with reality. When David spoke of God's king, verse 27, you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, you will not let your holy one see decay. That doesn't stack up with what we know of David, because David died. And David was buried. And David decayed. His body is in a tomb to this day. 
So if David was not speaking about himself when he wrote Psalm 16, who was he speaking about? Who was the psalm about? It's as if David is making claims that are too big for him. Claims of immortality that are just a few sizes too large for King David. If he's not talking about himself, then who is he talking about? Who is this king going to be? He's talking about Jesus. David wasn't just a king. David was a prophet too. Not just one to rule God's people, but one to speak for God to his people. And so verse 30. He knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. That's 2 Samuel 7. If you know those promises. 2 Samuel 7. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah that was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. If it wasn't about David, well, who was it about? It's about one from his line who would come, who was not abandoned to the realm of the dead. And what convinced Peter? What convinced Peter that Jesus was this king? Well, 22 to 24. Something changed his mind. Jesus was a man who was, you see, accredited by miracles, wonders, signs, which God did among you and through him as you yourselves know. They saw it. This Jesus, he was handed over with the help of wicked men. But as we saw last time, this was all part of God's plan. We saw last time that even through Judas, God was using evil things. Things being done that shouldn't be done. Culpable acts and yet used in his plans and purposes. And so verse 23, he was nailed to the cross. So verse 24, he was raised again. And so, as we saw in our first week in Acts, Peter saw him. Verse 3 to 5 of chapter 1. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus was not just a king, he was the king. He was the king that David had been looking forward to. The one from his line who would defeat death, whose body would not decay. Maybe you're here and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, or you're not quite sure. You're just looking in on Christian things. Um, And your question is, well, how do we know that he rose again? How can we tell if it's true or not? Isn't this just something somebody's made up? This sort of thing doesn't happen. So how can it happen? Why should I believe that it happened? I want to say to you, firstly, stick around. See see how the book continues. If it's all made up, if it's all a lie, I take it things will go a bit pear-shaped. But why do things spread as they do? Why are these disciples transformed? Why, Why are they suddenly changed? It's interesting, I don't know if you've seen in the papers recently, there's a... 
an American biblical scholar, I say biblical, I'll put some commas around it there, called Joseph Atwill. He'd written a book that basically said um, the Romans invented Jesus. It's a book called Covert Messiah. He's got a conference on the 19th down in London. Um, He basically says that Jesus didn't exist and the Romans invented him. And the reason they did that was so that they could control these Christians. They could make them do what they wanted. They could be slaves, basically. They would be peaceful and do as they're told. I think my question for him, I'm not going to go on the 19th, but I think it would be, so where does this all come from? If this is just something that people have made up, if this is just something that the Romans have constructed aside from all the historicity and all that kind of thing, then where does this actually come from? Why are these people prepared to die for what they saw? Why is there this line that goes on and on and on and on and reaches us? Remember we said Luke was about what Jesus began to do and teach. Acts is what he continues to do and teach through his spirit-empowered people. As they open their mouths, as they, verse 17, as they prophesy. A prophetic people empowered by his spirit, calling on folk to call on the name of the Lord and be saved. So if you're here and you're not sure whether it's true, you're just looking in on stuff, then, then I'd urge you to keep coming back. To test this stuff for yourself. If, if it's true, it's worth thinking through. It's worth thinking carefully about. Secondly, I'd love to invite you, we'll have some flyers next week, but I'd love to invite you to something called Christianity Explored, which is a chance to ask your questions, to study some of the text, to think and to hear and to look at some of these things and think through what it really means. What does Peter do? He speaks their language. Everyone thinks these crazy first believers are drunk because they all start praising God in their language and yet he says, no, no, look at Joel. Joel told you to expect this. His spirit is poured out and it's a new era. And he said, listen to David. David told you to expect this. God's king was always going to rise again. David was making promises that didn't really fit with him. They fit with someone else, with Jesus.